Amen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, the 17th chapter. You have a copy of God's Word, Acts 17. And we're going to pick up in chapter 17, verse 22 in just a moment. And we are in a series of messages here in July that we're calling Understanding the Times. And we're looking at some of the issues, the pressing issues of our culture, our nation. And how do we respond as Christians? We began last week talking about the issue of racism. And we're going to continue with that subject today and look at a text that we referenced last week. But we're going to look a little further into it. And we pick up in Acts 17. And the Apostle Paul is in the city of Athens. And he is uh, preaching to or he's going to speak to the philosophers. And we read in verse 21, it's kind of a on ramp, the Athians and the foreigners who were there spent all their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Uh, it was their hobby to find out the latest ideas. Now, some people will like to find out the latest gossip. They, find, they wanted to find out the latest ideas in their world. What were people thinking? What were their philosophers saying? And so Paul's going to be speaking to people who were sort of deep thinkers or thought they were. And he's going to teach them and speak to them about Christ. And, and he's going to tell them that Christ is revealed all around them. So Acts chapter 17, we're going to begin reading in verse 22. You have God's word. Let's read there. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So these people were religious. They had altars. They didn't want to miss any God. And they had one there that was in case we miss one. But Paul says this, Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And now he's going to describe him. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and men's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your word, the hearing of it, the preaching of it. Speak deeply to us and change us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you, I mentioned last week we're sitting here. You're social distance enough. If you want to take your mask off while you listen to the sermon, you're good. You're spread out far enough. We're talking about racism, understanding its history, its, time, its effects, and its cure. And last week we gave you sort of a definition for it. It's uh, racism is a belief that race, which is a category of humankind that shares distinctive physical traits. And we said the distinctive physical traits is what? Skin color. That's the only thing different. We all have two ears and two hands and all that. All people do. The, 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 the difference is color of skin. And, and the belief is that color of skin is the primary determinant of human traits, human capacities. And that racial differences produce an inherent superiority or inferiority of a particular race. In other words, race is what makes you worthy. Race is what makes you unworthy. See, it is racist to look at a person's skin color and determine their worth or value. If I determine I like you or dislike you simply because of your skin color, that's racist. 
If I support you because of your skin color, people said for years, well, certain people are racist because they won't vote for someone because of their skin color. Well, that's true. Other people are racist because they do vote because of skin color. It's just as racist because by definition, that's what it means. Now, today we're going to look at what we, where we, we're going to begin today where we ended last week. And last week we ended with these four foundational truths regarding humanity. The four foundational truths regarding humanity are four Bible doctrines that teaching regarding mankind. Last week we said we could see them as four reasons we reject racism or why racism is sin. And I'm going to give you these four again because they're foundational to our beliefs. And I'm going to walk through this message and we're going to see that historically people have he, people have rejected these. Historically, people have uh, not believed these. Oh, they may have said they believed them, but they lived opposite of what they said. So here are the four basic things. Number one, all people are created by God. All people are created by God. Paul addresses this in verse number 24 and 25 when he says, God who made the world and everything in it. And then in verse 25, he says, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God created everything, and he gives life to any living thing and to everything. Last week, we saw that God formed a man out of the dust of the ground. It's the very simple doctrine that God created people. God created everything. But the second important truth is all people are created in God's image. Not only created by God, they are. But this is very important. They're created in the very image of God. In verse 28 and 29, Paul addresses this. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul's quoting one of their prophets. That was from a Cretan poet named uh, Epimendes. So when they heard this, their ears were perked up. But some of these prophets, these philosophers were sort of finding truth. And, and so this man says, well, we live and move in God. And that's true, folks. Listen, everybody's alive because God created them. And everybody's living because God allows them to live. And and then Paul says in verse 29, he quotes another one of their poets or one of their writers was Artus. And he uh, said this, that we are the offspring of God. Verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So Paul's making a point. You people are out here worshiping stones, and yet you believe this man who says we're God's offspring. Well, if, is God a stone? Are you a stone? You're saying that this is God, and yet you also say you're the offspring of God. He says it makes no sense for you to be a thinking, living being and to have a God that's not alive. You're his offspring. And so we said last week that this, the, the image of God is the, the attribute of man where we have consciousness. We're conscious of ourselves. We're conscious of others. We're conscious of right and wrong, and we're especially conscious of God himself. This is one of the things that separate us from the animals. Animals may have a conscious of their self, but they have no conscious of others. They have no conscious of right and wrong, and they have no conscious of God. The image of God means we have this factor in us to know God, to know him and to believe him and to trust him and to be able to say he walks with me and talks with me and tells me I'm his own because he's made us in his image. The third thing, all people are of one family. Now, this one family is the human family. It's not spiritual family, but it speaks of this physical human life. Last week, remember, in Genesis 3, Adam named Eve. Remember Eve, and what does it mean of Eve's name? Mother of all living. The name Eve means the mother of all that live. Then you get to Genesis 9. And the flood came, remember, and everybody was wiped out but Noah and his family. And we read where God told Noah and his family to replenish the earth. So we came through Adam and Eve and, and went down to that line. We, we came through Noah's part of that line, Noah and his three sons. Genesis 1 speaks of God creating animals and plants after their kind. Remember that when you read your Bible? Genesis 1, go back and read it. It says 10 times in chapter 1, after their kind. Well, God made Adam and Eve. God made Adam and then he made Eve after his kind. And then they began to have children that were after their kind. See, the fact is, is that we were created through one man, Adam, and through one woman, Eve. And every human being, this is interesting, it's amazing, that at fertilization, all the genetic information needed to, to form a human is present at fertilization. And from that fact, the human race is 
one race. Robert Lee Holtz, he's a scientist at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, said this, race is a social construct. I I said this last week. We learned this last week. What is a social construct? Well, a social construct is something that's created by and accepted by a society. And we gave you an example like middle class is something we accept and we created. Well, he says race is the same thing. And it's derived mainly from perceptions conditioned by the events of recorded history, and it has no basis in biological reality. In other words, biology doesn't say there's different races. Genetics does not teach us there's different races. Did you know if we were different races, we would not be able, we would not be able to produce with people of another skin color? Animals don't, they can't reproduce with other animals. But humans can. Skin color is the only difference. So Paul says here that we are one family. Verse 26, he says it this way. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. One blood. We're one family. By the way, the rest of this verse is important too. Notice what it says. And has determined their pre-appointed times. In other words, you weren't born out of accident. You live when you live. God determined that. Not only that, you live where you live by God's determination and the boundaries of their dwellings. Now, this is very interesting. I don't have time to go into it long. The boundaries of their dwellings or their, uh, yeah, their dwellings. What does that mean? The nations that they live in. And you know why God said that? Because nations are to have borders. You govern government. God set up government. God set up government to govern areas that are bordered. When God told Israel to go take land, he told them, go over here and you get the land from this point to that point. And they all knew where it was because God told them which borders. People today are wondering, should we have borders? Should we control our borders? Yes, because that's, the, that's our nation. God gave us that. That's scriptural. You can't govern something indefinite. You can't own something indefinite. You remember in the scriptures, God told them many times, like in the book of Proverbs, don't mess with the ancient landmarks. What was that? That was a place that marked out certain, certain boundaries. Don't move them. Borders are part of our nation. There's people that want us just to ignore our borders, just have open borders. You know what that's about? That's about one world government and a new world order. That's about the end times. It's right here in the scriptures. Their boundaries, where they live, the nations that they would be born in. Number four, all people are loved by God. All people are loved by God. God's objective for man in revealing himself as creator, ruler, and savior is that they would seek him. Notice what he says in verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. God's desire because he loves men is that they would hear about him and they would seek him. They would realize all this stuff in this world is empty and that you need him and you would seek him. And he's not far, although he seemed like a long ways away at times because you didn't know him. He was, he was right there and something had to happen where you and I would reach out to him and call on his name and be saved. But he was right there all along. And that's God's hope. Why? Because he loves the world. Remember, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All people are loved by God. Therefore, all racism, all hatred of people, really for any reason, but since we're on the subject of race, all hatred of any people due to their race, their ethnicity, is sin. All looking down on people as inferior because of their skin color or anything else is sin because our, our founders really were right. All men are created equal. God created us. These truths are to guide how we view other human beings, how we treat one another. This along with the second great commandment, which is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. These commandments, these guidelines, and this commandment is to guide how we treat other people. Now, we learn as we walk through life that people, well-meaning people, Christian people, even haven't always done this. 
That's what we'll talk about the second thing, the rejection of these truths historically. Since the fall of man into sin, man has been rejecting these simple truths over and over again. When, when did man fall into sin? Genesis chapter 3. Remember we studied it last week. Adam and Eve sinned. They fall into sin. Remember we walked through it. Adam and Eve played the blame game. What happens immediately in chapter 4? Well, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve began to have children. And what happened? Cain killed Abel. You don't get far from the Garden of Eden to the first murder in history within a family. You don't get far, much farther from that. You get over into Genesis chapter 6 and we see that God is going to judge the world because of sin. And it's very interesting even in the early pages of Genesis to see God's judgment, his admonition to these people and his correct and rebuke. Listen to Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. What a terrible thing to say that God was sorry that he made us. When you and I sorrow, when we see this world, when we sorrow over these heartbreaking things, remember God sorrows too. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, which is what we all need to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. But listen to this, a couple of verses later, verse 11. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Men were killing each other. There was terrorism on the, in the days of Noah. There was murder. There was ungodliness, wickedness. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So God judged the world in Genesis 6 through 9 with the flood. Remember, and then God told Noah and his sons to replenish the earth, and they did. And then we get to Genesis chapter 11, and we touched on it last week. Man was so prideful, he thought he was going to build his way up to God. And God sent the divided tongues, the confused tongues. And at the Tower of Babel, he separated the people as a judgment. And ever since then, man's been going his own way. And all of these things, all of this oppression, all this hatred has continued because the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. And all through the Bible, it tells us about this. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, looked at the world he lived in. In Ecclesiastes 4.1, he said this, Then I returned and considered all the oppression. People are acting like oppression is a new thing. All the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power. That's how people oppress. They have power, but they have no comforter. Ecclesiastes 5.8, he says this, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, do not marvel at that matter. In other words, he says, listen, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked if you see people mistreating other people. Don't be shocked if you see things in this world that aren't just. Not that we should just accept it, but we should not go around shocked that people do this. And let me just tell you, this is one of the reasons Jesus is going to come back and rule this world because man will never rule it completely right. Man will, you're living in a fairy tale if you believe that this world is ever going to be just without Jesus sitting on the throne. Well, the rest of that verse continues and it says this, do not marvel at the matter for high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. What is he, what is he saying there? He says, listen, we had to set up layers of government. So somebody could watch out for one another. And, and this guy here is oppressing. This guy here is supposed to tell him, no, you're not supposed to do it. And that's kind of like the swamp. But what about our country? How can we get specific and see how historically we've rejected these truths as a nation at times? And the, and the results of it. I'm going to give you some specific examples. You know these or maybe all of them. But number one is slavery. We hear a lot of talk about it today. Um, slavery is a sad, tragic period of our history. But we need to educate ourselves concerning the issue and not just listen to the people on TV talking about it. The world had a slavery issue long before America had a slavery issue. The slaves were early uh, in, in human history. Slavery was early. It's early in the pages of the Bible. Remember in Exodus... Israel was what? They were slaves to Egypt in the second book of the Bible. 
The early days of human history tells us there was slavery. Now, slavery was most often motivated by desires for power and prosperity. In some cases, slavery was the economic system of countries and world. Uh, I read a year or so ago in studying that it's estimated that the Roman Empire had as many as 60 million slaves during its existence. It's amazing to think. People were slaves at all levels, from domestic all the way up to, in, to really hard slavery. Uh, but the Roman, Roman economic system was a system of slavery. That's why the New Testament, Paul addresses it a couple of times. Peter addresses it because slaves were common. It was part of their economic system. But slavery was most often motivated, or the people who would be taken slaves were most often motivated by the fact they were the vulnerable. Vulnerability is what? people looked for when they went to put someone in slavery. Uh, who can we oppress? Who can we control? It wasn't just necessarily race. I'm not saying it wasn't race motivated at all, but we must understand if you look at history, people of all skin colors were both enslaved and enslavers. In the Bible, when the Bible talks about slavery, do you know the New Testament nor the Old Testament attaches any racial stigma to slavery at all? The Bible doesn't say enslave this race. These people were sometimes put in slavery because they were wicked and because God wanted to punish them, but it wasn't because of their race or they were inferior. It was because of their sin. That being said, slavery was a world issue, but it was also an American issue. America was part of what became known as the Atlantic slave trade. That trade brought over 14 million slaves from Africa over 400 years. I didn't realize it went this long been studying a little bit, 400 years, over 14 million Africans were bought and sold in slavery. Uh, two so million of those never made it. They died in the trip to different countries. And people talk about slavery affecting a nation. You want to know the nation it affected mostly was Africa. Africa suffered more than any nation from slavery. We recently stood in what's known as the Slave Mart Museum uh, in Charleston, and I didn't realize I went through that whole museum and I read every banner they had, everything they had about it. I read it word for word, read all of it, and I didn't realize this, but did you know that Haiti, Cuba, and Brazil, and many other countries purchased more African slaves than the United States did? It's hard to believe. 31% of those 14 million slaves went to Brazil. Portugal was the first nation in history that we know of to purchase African slaves. It was a world problem. It was an American problem. But why was it a problem? Because the Africans were the most vulnerable. Slave traders had technology. They had guns. They had greater weapons. They had more money. So African tribal leaders and African kings began to help them trap and sell fellow Africans because they could make money. They were the oppressors. They had the power. The money came into them. They they participated in what we just read about, the enslavers, the oppressors. Now, of course, these people had some tendency to be racist because they thought they were, their lives were more important than these other people's lives. They thought these people were inferior to them and their life didn't matter as much as them. But where I believe Americans failed the most in this is when we tried to justify slavery and the mistreatment of people. Not just when we did it, but when we made arguments to justify it. That's what man does though, isn't it? Man justifies his wrongdoing. He justifies it to himself. He'll justify it to others. We see this on TV all the time. Watch the news. Half of, the, half of the, uh, these talking heads is somebody's justifying somebody's wrong. This is what people do. Americans made arguments like this. Africans are a different race and they cannot mix with whites and Africans as a class and as a race are inferior intellectually and morally to white people and they're incompetent to govern themselves almost like we're doing them a favor. This went against the very principles of our nation. It went against the word of God but it also went against our founding documents, Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. So where was the church, you might wonder, because the church was in America, the church was established. Where was the church? Well, unfortunately, you know what the church was doing? Struggling to do the right thing. The church was struggling to do the right thing. The debate within Christianity over slavery led to splits. Some people wonder, why do we have so many denominations? Well, this is part of the reason. 
As Christianity began to split over the issue of slavery, Baptists, for example, which are one, uh, Baptists were divided into two groups mainly. Uh, the Southern Baptist was the pro-slavery group, and we are Southern Baptist Church. The American Baptists were the abolitionists. In 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed at First Baptist Church, Charleston, South Carolina, which we were just there, and we went to that church and took pictures there. But, you know, it's a, it's a sad past. But the SBC, by the way, has, has apologized for its racist pro-slavery group a pro-slavery background more than any group I ever knew of. Do you know the Southern Baptist Convention has been voting on resolutions about slavery since at least the 1980s and saying that our founders and our ancestors were wrong and we don't want any part of it and, and, and we've apologized and, and I really believe people were sincere and, but you know it's hard to apologize for something other people did. Just say it's not who we are anymore. And by the way, that's, that's what grace is, isn't it? I'm not who I was anymore. I'm not who I used to be. We're not, we're not that group of people. Unfortunately, during that time, many preachers, many churches, many Christians misused the Bible's teaching on slavery to justify it. And when they did, they disenfranchised and alienated many black people. This led to the beginning, not only of many Christian denominations, white denominations, but it led to the beginning of black churches and black denominations. The African Methodist Episcopal denomination was born in 1784 because of this type of belief. And listen, you know what that did? That began segregation. People talk about, why are the churches so segregated? Well, it goes back right here. And do you know why all this happened? Because these people rejected these four truths we just talked about. They claimed they believed them, but they didn't believe them enough to act on them properly. It's so easy for all of us to do that. It's so easy. Yeah, I believe this and I believe that, but we live differently than what we proclaim. Secondly, reconstruction and segregation. America fought a civil war to end slavery, and it ended. On January the 1st, 1863, you know this, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation to end slavery. Did you know, I didn't know this until this, until this research, I didn't realize this, that America is the only nation in world history to have a leader sign a proclamation that ended slavery at once like that. America is the only nation. Other nations eventually outlawed it through different acts, but our president signed a proclamation saying no more slavery. Some nations ended it because it just dried up. They couldn't get any more slaves, but America ended it because it was the right thing to do. And why was it the right thing to do? Because Abraham Lincoln had faith in God. Listen to this quote he said. Abraham Lincoln, in a speech he gave in, in Peoria, Illinois, on October the 16th, 1854, he's speaking about the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So Kansas got involved here. Um, and by the way, that was a, 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 an act that led to the conflicts known as Bleeding Kansas, if you know a little bit about your Kansas history. But look what he said. My ancient faith teaches me that all men are created equal and that there can be no moral right in connection with one man making a slave of another. His ancient faith, his belief in God, his Christian faith led him to be an abolitionist. But during this time of reconstruction, after Abraham Lincoln signed that declaration and after we ended the Civil War was the period known as Reconstruction when America was supposed to be rebuilding and we were going to re-enlist uh, or, or allow back in the Union State, I mean the Confederate States. During that time, evolution made its way to America. Remember, we talked about evolution last week. Charles Darwin, or, or think about the history. It was during this same time of the Civil War that Charles Darwin's theory was being popularized. And then in his second book, The Descent of Man, Darwin popularized the ideas of different races. Now, last week I told you that race was used as nations in, up to this point. The English race or the Italian race or, or, or the Irish race. Well, Darwin made races this way, the lower races, the higher races, the primitive races, the more evolved races. And then he assigned colors to those. And the white races were always the more evolved and more advanced. And people began to buy into this. Because Reconstruction came and Abraham Lincoln had signed the... Uh, Emancipation Proclamation, people had no longer the legal ability to enforce slavery. So they turned to theories of evolution to justify their racism. Racism fueled, uh, was fueled by evolution because people said they now had a scientific 
reason to justify their discrimination, their abuse. And later on, as we, we showed you last week, people even justified mass genocide due to the fact that they believed they were a higher race than this lower race. Well, Reconstruction ended around 1877. And at that time period, black Americans were beginning to have rights. America was making some effort to address the, uh, the inequities that slavery had caused. And then all of a sudden, states began to pass what became known as Jim Crow laws. I don't have time to go into all that. You can go look it up if you don't know. But these laws basically were undoing Reconstruction, undoing what Abraham Lincoln and others had put in place. They wanted to eliminate rights and freedoms that blacks had had after the Civil War. And you know, these, war, these laws lasted they started in the 1880s, and they lasted, many of them, until the 1960s. For 80 years, well into the 20th century, America had these laws on the books. The Supreme Court, God help the Supreme Court. We may have the worst Supreme Court we've had in our lifetime right now. It's pitiful. And they've always made their mark, usually not for good. In Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, the Supreme Court ruled that separate but equal did not violate anyone's rights. In other words, separate conditions, separate facilities. So what happened was states, particularly in the South, began to pass segregation laws. They restricted blacks from schools, restaurants, hospitals, other public places, even preventing people who had the right to vote from voting because they were black. And by 1910, less than 60 years after the Civil War, and all that death, we lost more lives in the Civil War than any war ever. And really, I think all wars combined. By 1910, segregation was a way of life, particularly across the South. And let me tell you something. That was real, personal, institutional, and systemic racism. There it was right there. Well, where was the church? Where was the church when it started? Well, the church was often wrong. During segregation, the church was often wrong and more often silent. It's sad to say this. Many, many used the Bible to justify segregation. Remember, this was a period of time when evolution was becoming popular. And if you go back and read your Christian history, you know what happened in America and Europe? Preachers and churches and denominations began denying that this book was inerrant and infallible. They began to deny that maybe God did create us just like it says in Genesis. And maybe God, we just evolved and all this is just allegory. Maybe this really isn't how we got here, and maybe this really isn't all the story. And then when you deny the beginning, guess what? You can deny the end. And then when you deny the beginning and you deny the end, guess what? You can do whatever you want to in the middle. And that's what people do. And that's what these people did. They began to deny that we were created and we we're all of one blood and we we're all of one nation. So during this period when we rejected the Word of God and we became open to theories of evolution... Christian preachers and churches began to suggest that it was better for the races to stay separate. Segregation. It was better. See, it was popular in the South to, to be segregationist preacher because most of your people were segregationists. Listen, and every preacher is going to face that same thing today. Every preacher is now going to face the temptation to say, listen, let's go along. The culture says that most white people are racist and most black people are oppressed. So let's get out in the pulpit and say that when it's not true. That's what happened then. Now we're going to reverse it. I'm not going to reverse it, by the way. I'm just going to tell you what it says here in the book. But others were simply silent. A lot of people just went along, didn't want any problem, didn't want, any, didn't want people to be upset, didn't want to lose church members. And you know what this did? Well, it was sin. But it led to great error. It led to great distrust by black people for evangelical Christians. You can study it and find the timeline that black, a black Muslim movement began to arise during this time, particularly in the 60s in America. A man by the name of Elijah Muhammad was um, supposed to be a Muslim prophet. He preached that Christianity was a black enslaving religion, and many people followed him. This caused also a new theology called black liberation theology. Now we had white churches and black churches. We had black theology and white theology. So we're all divided. Finally, things began to change, at least legally, with the passage of Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and other things that would be passed. Now, listen, America's not perfect. If, if what I've just said to you isn't evidence, then go back and 
Rewatch it. But we are one of the only nations in history to ever reverse course so drastically. To change our legal precedents. And today there are no laws that discriminate against any person of color that are legal anywhere in the boundaries of these states. And there used to be plenty of them. And that's within our lifetime. That leads to the third thing. Poverty programs. As the 1960s ended, the government wanted to help people, of course. But as the government often does, it messes up the more it tries to help. And you can quote me on that. (laughs) Lyndon Johnson began what he called a war on poverty, which actually became a continuation of poverty. Of a continuation of poverty that has disproportionately hindered black Americans instead of helping them. Johnson had what he termed a great society, and he believed the federal government was to have an expanded role in education, health care, and it would reduce poverty strategies. And since that time, the federal government has spent over $20 trillion on poverty programs. Almost every year in America, when you take state money and local money, America spends upward of a trillion dollars every year on poverty. And we still have pretty much the same level of poverty. It goes up, it goes down, but it eventually gets back to just about where it was when we started. Now, that, those poverty programs targeted minorities, particularly black people. The government set up poverty offices in major cities, inner cities, to recruit minorities into the program. People, I didn't know this, but people went, people who experienced have, have been talking about it. The, these government people went and interviewed people and signed them up for the program, promised them public housing and food stamps and checks and medical care. And the government even said, listen, we'll help subsidize your children if they're illegitimate. The federal government did this. Now, what happened? What do you think happened? The black family, because blacks were particularly targeted with this, the black family began to crumble. I've been studying and listening to a man named Bob Woodson. You ought to look him up on on YouTube. He's got an institute. He was a part of the civil rights movement. He speaks eloquently about this. But listen to what he said. In 1865, even when it was often illegal for blacks to marry, there were laws that wouldn't even let slaves marry. 1865 was the end of the Civil War. At that time, 75% of saved families had men and women together raising their children. In 1962, that number was 85%. Black people were astonished that 15% of their babies were being born out of wedlock. Black families were intact. Fathers were in the home. But since the poverty programs across the board, that number has begun to drop. In every ethnic group today... About 25% of black fathers are in the home. 52 years, 53 years. Thomas Sewell is an economist, a man I, I read and listen to, and he says this about the war on poverty. The black family which had survived centuries of slavery and discrimination began rapidly disintegrating in the liberal welfare state that subsidized unwed pregnancies and changed welfare from an emergency rescue to a way of life. You get what you pay for. We subsidize illegitimacy and irresponsibility. And black people were targeted. Now, I personally believe there's motivations like power. Political power is a good reason to do this. But I want to tell you, we need to face the reality. In many cases, black people have been exploited in America. As slaves. And and, and this whole thing here with poverty programs. Black people have been exploited. The last thing, number four. Abortion. Better put your thinking cap on today, huh? Abortion. Abortion is a terrible evil, no matter who's involved in it. But listen, it's especially evil because since, our, since America has been aborting babies legally, we have targeted minorities and blacks in particular. The government funded illegitimate births. But that behavior became so common... And the sexual revolution came. We funded birth control, but that wasn't enough. So then we made abortion legal because unwanted pregnancy became so pervasive. 
So we made abortion illegal to take care of much of the problem. The legal abortion was a way out. And you know its top provider is Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood, and this is from a quote from a woman in the 1970s, Irma Clardy Craven, and she'd studied this. This is what she said. Planned Parenthood's policies are made by upper middle class white people who have a fetish about controlling the reproductive capacity of others, especially those who are poor and black. Planned Parenthood was founded by Margaret Sanger, who was a racist, who hated black people, who was a eugenicist, and who was an evolutionist. It all comes back to denying the truth of what God says in his word. Did you know today that more than 80% of Planned Parenthood's clinics are in inner city communities, minority communities? How many middle class neighborhoods have you ever rode through and saw a Planned Parenthood clinic? How many shopping malls do you ever find a Planned Parenthood clinic? It was amazing to me to find. You couldn't find one around unless you went to the inner city. I was telling people, I had never seen one. You just hadn't been in the right neighborhood. It's targeted. Our federal government gives over $500 million a year to Planned Parenthood, not for abortion, but for health care services. Folks, listen. The people who gave us abortion and keep fighting for it and funding it are the political descendants of the people who fought for segregation and Jim Crow laws. They're the grandchildren of those folks. And this is why, by the way, the current generation of people out pulling down statues and protesting have no right to do so because they support killing over 3,000 babies a day. And if we're going to kill our babies, who are we to stand in judgment over Washington and Lincoln and Jefferson? And by the way, abortion is going to be our slavery. If God lets this world live to continue 200 more years, maybe somebody will look back and say, how barbaric were those people that they had illegal abortion? We outlawed it. How barbaric were those people that they slaughtered thousands of their own babies a day? That's what they're doing, in effect, looking back. Well, these people are awful because they had slavery, and you're supporting abortion. All of this, all of this because people reject what God says in his word. Now let's get to some good news. The establishment of these truths spiritually. How do we see these truths established in our world? How is it going to turn around? I mean, God says that this is the truth. People reject it. How has it ever happened that these things have been established in the first place? Well, uh, I'm going to give you three, and there's many more. There's many more. One of the things is this Bible right here that's been printed and the most uh, owned and read book in the world. God, God used his word many, many times. How many times has the word changed your life? Well, this is the word of God. It's God's used it. But I want to give you uh, three things uh, very quickly. And there's, like I said, there's many more. Number one is the founding of the church. The founding of the church. If you want to mark your place right here, hold your finger. Turn to Acts chapter 2 very quickly. Just you might want to read it with me. You might just want to listen. The founding of the church. And it was specific. The founding of the church was specifically addressed this sin result of the Tower of Babel, this separation, this different tongues. Notice what happens. God's going to bring unity in the day of Pentecost. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, why was that? Because God's going to do something to bring unity so they could all understand. God's doing something to do unity, and he's doing it with tongues. God did something to bring division, and he did it with tongues in Genesis 11. Acts 2, God did something with tongues to bring unity because he wants his church to be unified. Verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and, there were confu and they were confused. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one, one another, whatever could this mean? The founding of the church was a reversal of this curse of division. Sin separates, but salvation is to unite. 
The church surely has failed in many times in many places. But don't forget, God still means to bring people to himself and to each other when he, when he founded his church. The dividing of sin is to be overcome by the uniting of the Spirit. This is why it's important that our churches reach people and grow. Not just so we'll have a better America to live in, so people can know God and have a life eternal. It was Christians living out Christian principles, by the way, that helped end slavery. William Wilberforce, Abraham Lincoln, and others living out the Word of God, bringing the Word of God to people. And the church was right on the front lines of that. God founded His church to overcome this division. We need to pray the day will come in America. We won't talk about the black church or the white church, but the church. The church. Secondly, we can turn back to Acts 17. Re revival at strategic times. Revivals at strategic times. God has graciously sent revivals to this world at strategic times in our history. It's amazing to look and back and see that when times of revival have come and then to see the turmoil that would either come before or after. There was, a, there was what's known as the prayer meeting revival of 1857 and 1858. Some people believe it's the last great revival in America that affected us from coast to coast. Really had a, an impact in more than just a few regions. It was started by a man named Jeremiah Lampier who just called for a uh, a prayer meeting in 1857. In September of 1857, America was beginning to split at the seams. The, this, the, this split over slavery was rising up. Remember, 1861, the Civil War starts. 1857, Jeremiah Lampier goes and prays, and it starts slowly. Six people show up. Next thing you know, 30 people show up. Listen, they started a prayer meeting about two blocks from Wall Street. Before you knew it, hundreds of people, hundreds of men were meeting for prayer at lunch. It began to spread out all across New York City. It began to spread out across New York State, out across the East, out across America. Stock market crash in October the 10th of 1857. There were bank runs. There were failures. People started losing money. God started getting people's attention. You know how to get people's attention. You hit them in the pocketbook. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. You want to you wake somebody up, reach down and grab a little bit of that in the back pocket. This revival spread. Conservative estimates are that at least one million people were saved. Listen, out of a population of 30 million. So today, that would be 11 or 12 million people get saved. Listen, there's not a year in America where we see a million people get saved. Not 365 days, 400,000 churches do we see a million people get saved in America a year. They had... They had 10 or 11 million, I mean, had 1 million to be equivalent to 10 or 11 million for us get saved in less than two years. But there's another side of the story. The Civil War came, and like I said, it was the bloodiest war in our history. Well, people who were saved and converted and growing in that revival were drafted into these wars and went into fight. And Christian history tells us that there were many of these believers who went to war but also began to witness to their fellow soldiers. And many, many Confederate and many, many Union soldiers gave their life to Christ. Isn't it interesting if that's true, and we believe it is? They think as many as two million of those men might have got saved during that revival, during that time, during the war when people witnessing to them. Wouldn't it be just like God to show grace knowing what's coming? Knowing that many of these men sitting out here are going to go off. 625,000 Americans died in the Civil War. To know that many of those people are going to go into eternity and God sent a revival just before. You come at the end of the 1960s, we talked a lot about it. Some of you were alive and, and you were mature enough to remember the 60s. That was a gracious way of saying it, wasn't it? <laughs> See, don't ever say I can't do that. But you know, history tells us that 1968 was one of the worst years in our history. Some of you, if you haven't looked at it, go, go on YouTube, watch some of these documentaries or read a book. It was one of the worst years in our history. We had assassinations. The country was on fire. There was riots. They burned watts. We were, people were dying left and right in Vietnam. Our government was lying to us left and right about it. It was a horrible, horrible year. 1969. In 1970, somewhere in 1969, in the early 1970, God sent the Jesus movement. 
this nation that was coming apart at the seams. And some historians will tell you that the Jesus movement may have been just enough to keep us through the, term, the tumultuous times that ended the 1960s and began the 1970s. Many of preachers today that are preaching were saved in the Jesus movement. Many of churches that are doing something for God were started during the Jesus movement of the end of the 1960s and the early 1970s. God has sent revival at strategic times and we need to pray for it. The last thing is this, preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. Listen, the temptation for the church is always to do something else. The church has always tried other methods to reach people. We've had the social gospel where we thought it was more important to feed them than it was to tell them about Jesus. But we didn't call them, into, we didn't call them to repentance. And churches are going to do this. I get emails from pastors and different groups saying, hey, you're going to join the protest, going to join the march? No. I'm going to preach, not protest. There are going to be Christian groups that are going to join with Black Lives Matter because we think that will help us reach people. But folks, listen. Getting off trying to fix all the racial problems can be a rabbit trail. It can lead us to a point where we become so frustrated because you can't change the heart of man apart from this truth. When Paul stood before these people and he preached this gospel to these thinkers, what did he say to them? Look at it, verse 30. Have your Bibles open? Look at it. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. This fact that you thought God was a stone and God was a statue and God was made of silver and God was made of gold. Well, God's been gracious. He's overlooked your times of ignorance. But now, but now, commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, God's still calling all men everywhere to repent. The racists, the oppressors, those who think they're oppressed, those who feel they're oppressed, those who are fighting everything to repent. Because he is appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That day is coming, and that judgment will be righteous. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. He preached Christ and him crucified, Christ and him resurrected. The only way, the only chance we have is to see people changed by the power of Jesus. To people hear the gospel message that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single person. No one, no one, listen. None of us have any right to look down on anyone. My sin was, has separated me from God. If I'd have died before that night in February 1991, I'd have been in hell as sure as the day is long. And I would have deserved it. And by the way, I still deserve it. But God who is gracious sent his son to die on the cross and proved that by raising him from the dead and he can save whosoever calls on his name. The only chance we have is the gospel. Bow with me in prayer.